Today we'll be continuing in our study in the letter to the Hebrews. And so if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 4. And while you're turning there, I wanted to share with you a line from Lewis Carroll's classic work, Through the Looking Glass. And in this book, we find a line that reads like this. Now here you see, it takes all the running that you can do to keep in the same place. If you want to get somewhere else, you must run at least twice as fast as you can. These words spoken by the Red Queen to Alice perfectly describes the condition of our day today. We live in a culture that's characterized by endless activities, fast-paced, problem-prone, project-oriented, distracted, and stressed. And as a result, we've often sacrificed the important things in life for the urgent things. And as a result, we've often sacrificed the personal for the professional and our private devotions for the public image that needs to be kept up. We've not only become a culture that can be described to be one that's continuously restless, but one that almost perceives rest as something that's utterly useless and even for the weak. Yet in contrast to what the world thinks and what the world believes, what we're about to find here in our passage today is the Christian's call to strive for rest. Not just any sort of generic rest, but a Christ-centered, God-ordained rest. But before I say too much on that, look down with me at our text now and let's read this passage together. Again, it's Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1, and we'll read all the way through verse 11. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. For indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. But the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. For we who have believed do enter that rest, as he has said, so I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all of his works. And again in this place, they shall not enter my rest. Verse 6, Since therefore it remains that some must enter it, and those to whom it was first preached did not enter it because of disobedience. Again, he designates a certain day, saying in David, Today, after such a long time as it has been said, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. There remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest has himself also seized from his works as God did from his let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. Amen. 
May God plant his eternal and inerrant word in our hearts. Bow with me now in a word of prayer. Our gracious Father, you have said in your word and you have promised that as your word goes forth, that it does not return void, but that, but that it goes forth and it accomplishes and does all that you please and will for it to do. And so we do pray and we ask that by the Spirit that you would do a mighty work in this place, that you would do a powerful work in this church. Build up and sanctify the saints and open the spiritual eyes of the blind that they might ultimately find rest in none other than the God of eternal rest in our dear Savior Jesus Christ in whose very name we pray. Amen. Amen. In the previous chapter, in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1, the writer exhorts his readers to us to look to and to consider Jesus as the apostle and as the high priest of our confession. And in introducing Jesus in these two ways, the writer spends the next few chapters unpacking what they mean. Jesus as the apostle in chapters 3 and 4, and Jesus as the high priest in chapters 4 through 10. Now, in our immediate context, context, chapters 3 and 4, we find that the writer describes Jesus as our apostle, just as Moses was God's apostle in the Old Testament. Yet, in stark contrast, while Moses' apostleship ultimately failed because he was never able to lead the people of God into the promised land of Canaan, Jesus, on the other hand, as the true apostle, accomplished what Moses couldn't do in infinitely more on a physical and spiritual level. I mean, we've sung about this multiple times in the past few weeks as Christ, the true and better Moses. And so we find the writer here of Hebrews here urging his readers to fix their eyes upon Christ at the end of chapter 3. And he does this not with words of admonition, but with words of caution. He gives a warning. In verse 19, we read here that the Israelites did not enter into the promised land, verse 19, because of what? Because of unbelief. It was unbelief and the sins of the Israelites that was the source and the cause of their falling in the wilderness. It was because of this unbelief and faithlessness that the Israelites fell short of taking hold of and enjoying and participating in that great promise of rest given by God. And in all of this, the writer in quoting Psalm 95 points to and draws attention to the fact that the one true enemy to the Christian life is not the devil, it's not Satan, but it's unbelief. And it's this exhortation, this warning against unbelief under the theme of rest that then continues into our passage today in chapter 4. So with this in mind now, look down and let's look at verse 1 of chapter 4 again. Let's read this quickly again together. We read in verse 1, Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. In concluding chapter 3 with the stern warning against unbelief, the writer's main point here in verse 1 is, 
Therefore, because of Israel's example of unbelief and faithlessness that dropped them dead in the wilderness, therefore, let us fear. And that's that exhortation that we see here in verse 1. And the question that naturally then makes its way in our minds as we read this is, okay, uh, if that's what we see here, what exactly does it mean then to fear? What, does it, what are we to exactly fear? And the answer is right here. As we continue to read, we read, fear that any of you seem to have come short of entering into God's rest. Just as we've stated that the great enemy to every Christian believer is unbelief, the attitude or the disposition, the mindset, and the demeanor that is then most dangerous to the saints of God is one of complacency. It's a lack of concern. And the reason for why that is, is that if you were to continue to go on about living your lives in the busyness of daily activities and the distractions of life, faithlessly and carelessly assuming your salvation and presuming upon the grace of God that all is well with life, we read here that you will then come short of eternal rest. Now, at first glance, it seems like there's only one promise here in verse 1, the promise of entering God's rest. But if we were to slow down and carefully examine this this verse, uh, we would quickly come to recognize that there are actually two promises here given by God. We not only see the promise of rest that remains for those who believe in the Lord, but also the promise of condemnation. A promise of condemnation for those who are not careful. For those who do not fear. In other words, just as we're to recognize that there exists a promise of entering into God's rest, we are to simultaneously fear the other promise of being excluded from that rest. To be counted as those who come short of God's rest. Now the question that we really need to consider here, the question that we need to ask and answer is, what exactly is the root of this fear? We clearly see here in verse 1 that we're to fear lest any of us come short of God's rest, but that's just the result. So again, what, what is the source that's giving way? What is that source that's bringing about this fear? We already briefly touched on this, but the answer is found in verse 19 of chapter 3. So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. We see here in verse 319 and 41, working in tandem, these two verses, to communicate to us that the root cause of this fear, this fear of coming short of God's rest, is rooted in unbelief. It's fear that's rooted in faithlessness. Now, how do we know this? Verse 2, we continue to read. For, giving cause, giving reason. For, indeed, the gospel that was preached to us was also preached to them. But the word which they heard did not profit them. This to say that the great dangers of unbelief that the Israelites faced and experienced in their day, despite seeing daily manna, despite seeing water leaping forth from a rock, 
despite seeing the many wonders and signs of God, is that same danger of unbelief that knocks on each and every one of our doors today. That same unbelief that restrained and constrained and ultimately condemned the Israelites in that wilderness from entering into that promised land of rest is that same spirit of unbelief that still exists today. And here's the connection. Again, looking at verse 2. Let us fear. Why? Because the gospel message that was preached to us is the same exact gospel message that was preached to them. But the word which they heard did not profit them. Why? What's the reason? Because it was not mixed with faith. Now I need you to recognize here and remind you that this epistle and this specific warning was not written to those outside of the church. Rather, this epistle, Hebrews, was written to the church. It was written to Christians, meaning He's writing to you. He's writing to me. He's writing to us and warning us of a specific kind of danger that manifests, manifests itself to those who know the gospel message. This is a warning given to those of us who know and have received that message on an auditory level. In other words, the difference between the hearers in the example of Israel between those who perished in the desert versus those who didn't perish, was not so much in the difference of what was preached nor in the promise that was given to them, but in the type of listening, the type of receiving that was performed by each group. To state it more simply, there's a vast difference between knowing who God is by facts versus knowing who God is by faith. And I've said this before. There's an eternal divide between taking note on the person of Christ versus taking hold onto the person of Christ, you see. Martin Luther puts it in this way. It's one thing to say Christ is a Savior. It is quite another thing to say that Christ is my Savior and my Lord. The devil can say the first. But the true Christian alone can say the second. The distinctive that, that distinguishes someone from entering God's rest from those not entering God's rest is not in the message that's being preached, but whether if that message of salvation is being received by faith or not. It's whether you can say that Christ is not only just a God or the God, but that Christ is my God and my Savior. And friends, I guarantee you that merely hearing and listening to the message of the gospel does not and will not and will never save you. I don't have that power. You don't have that power. But it's only by the Spirit of God that makes alive the gospel of Christ, both in message and in faith. Now, going back to the question, what are we to fear? We're to fear unbelief. We're to fear the absence of faith. 
We're to fear the kind of thinking that was so manifest in the example of the Israelites who perished in the wilderness. It's the kind of thinking that sounds like this. Well, I go to church. I'm good. I go to PBC. I'm go- you could see my name on the membership page. I'm there. I'm part of God's local body. I belong to the family of God. I signed a card. I attended that event. That's got to mean something, right? I got baptized. I took the Lord's Supper. This and that and this and that and so on and so on and so on. And the list goes on. Friends, it's not enough to simply go to church any more than it was enough to have been a member of Israel during the Exodus. We clearly see what came out of that. We clearly see here that it's not enough to merely hear the gospel or to understand it. It's not even enough to be able to explain it to others or to even appreciate the wonder and the beauty of that message. But again, it's this, that unless you receive the gospel in faith, you will by no means enter God's rest and that's a promise. Now taking a step back while reading verse 2, some of you might have been thinking to yourselves, did the Old Testament Jews really have the same gospel preached to them than the one that we receive today? I mean, I thought the Old Old Testament was bad news and the New Testament was good news. I thought the Old Testament was about the law and the New Testament was about love and mercy and the grace of God. And we hear this kind of thinking and this kind of discussion and language all the time, do we not? But what we have here in verse 2 is perhaps one of the clearest proof texts in Scripture that communicates that the gospel that saves is not just a New Testament message, but is the message of God's Word. Though the plan of redemption, the foundation of of that gospel had not yet been laid until the advent of Christ and His crucifixion and His resurrection. God's message message of salvation has always been since the fall. I can just imagine some of your minds already going there, but we see this in Genesis 3.15. You don't have to turn there. But what we find here in this verse, and what theologians have long uh, referred to as the Proto-Evangelion, the first gospel, is the promise of a Messiah. And I'll just read it to you, it reads like this. And I will put an enmity, or rather, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. Furthermore, we also see the gospel at the very heart of the law at Mount Sinai. Now, if you've ever had the impression that the law of God in the Old Testament is not good news, I want you to listen very closely to these words. I'm going to read it out again. Exodus 34. Hear these words. We read in Exodus 34, verse 6, The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. What we find here at the center of God's law is the forgiveness of sin. At the heart of Old Testament law, we find the gospel. God, the Lord God, 
is one who is merciful and gracious, patient. He's long-suffering, overflowing and teeming with and, and radiating from his goodness and, and, and truth. He's radiating goodness and truth and love and grace and mercy. Forgiving not just sin, singular sin, but all iniquity, transgressions, and sins. Beloved, beloved if this is not good news here, I don't know what is good news. Not only do we clearly see that the Old Testament people received and heard that same gospel message that we have today, but they also perceived and received the promise of rest in Numbers 13 and 14. And you guys know this story very well. Numbers 13 and 14, as Israel was preparing themselves to enter into the promised land, Moses, in being commanded by God to send out 12 spies to survey the promised land of rest, Canaan, we read of Caleb and Joshua, how they come back to Moses and they report and they say to him, let us go up at once and take possession of the land, for we are well able to overcome it. Now what do the other ten faithless spies say to Moses? They say, we can't do that. We can't go in there. Have you seen them? There are tall people in there. They say, all the people whom we saw in it are men of great stature. There we saw giants and we were like grasshoppers. While the ten faithless spies reported in unbelief, Joshua and Caleb, on the other hand, said, It's ours for the taking. If the Lord delights in us, then He will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord, nor fear the people of the land. Why? For the Lord is with us. And this was the promise that Joshua and Caleb were holding on to. So while the whole mass of Israel, apart from Joshua and Caleb, going back to verse 2 of Hebrews 4 now, because the word they heard did not profit them, because it was received with faithlessness, they fell in the wilderness. This to say that we too will fall if we do not believe in faith. They had the good news. We have the good news. They had no faith and were unbelieving and they fell. And so the writer of Hebrews, he's pleading with us now as his readers, he's pleading with us, fear, fear this fall. Fear, fear the possibility of the gospel if received without faith, merely listened to and not believed in. Fear the possibility that rather than the gospel being the source of salvation, Fear the possibility of the gospel being a source of your condemnation. To all who hear but do not believe in faith. Friends, God gives to you in this moment a promise in verse 3. We read, So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now with all that being said, what exactly is this rest now? Is it a physical rest? Is it a, a rest referring to a promised land of some sort, as we've seen in the example of Israel and the land of Canaan? Or is it a spiritual, spiritual rest, a heavenly rest? 
What kind of rest is this? And we find the answer here in verses 4 through 10. Now, on a side note, if you noticed, uh, it gets a little tricky here in these verses. I mean, when I was reading it, it was a little hard even for me to not mess up without messing up reading verses 4 through 10. But uh, as we go through these verses, uh, I'll try my best to simplify what's being communicated here in these verses, but I want you to really try your best to track with me here. There are five distinct perspectives or points of rest that are presented within these verses. And in all of this, what the writer of Hebrews is trying to communicate to us here is that there does exist a specific type of rest for the people of God. And this rest isn't referring to a type of rest in the past, but a rest that's open for all today, which is what we read in verse 1. So here it goes. Here it is. The first point in verse 4, we read that it's been said in a certain place of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works, referring to Genesis 2.2. So in one aspect, what we learn here in verse 4 is that there undoubtedly exists a rest that's been initiated since the creation. That God is a God who not only created and ordained rest um, on the seventh day, but has patterned for us, his people, a rest to partake in and to enjoy and to be satisfied with. This is a rest that exists today and has existed since creation. Point number two. In immediately connecting Genesis 2 to Psalm 95, which refers to Israel's fall due to their disobedience, the writer continues to quote in verse 5, they did not, or rather shall not, enter my rest. And the picture that we have here is that the physical promised land of rest, Canaan, was to serve to God's people as an illustration or type of God's ultimate rest. The physical rest is to reflect the spiritual rest. But as we continue to read in verse 6, we see that it was due to their unbelief that ultimately excluded Israel from the land and from that rest which then raises the question, especially within the Jewish minds in that day, in trying to process all this, thinking, well, if that's the case, if, is there an actual rest then for the people of God? This is what the Jewish people are probably thinking. To which the answer is yes, leading to point number three, the time of Joshua. In verse eight, we read, for if Joshua had given them rest, and we see here that God had eventually let the people of Israel into the promised land of rest, specifically against Joshua and Caleb and the generation that came after those who rebelled against God, we read, For if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day after that. Meaning, if the physical promised land of rest in Canaan was the actual rest of God that he's been referring to since the creation, then it's all done then that would mean that the rest of God would have been accomplished and done away with. It's in the past. But we clearly see here that's not the case, and that that was not the final rest that God had planned. How do we know this? Because verse 8, God has spoken of another day, which brings us to point number 4. In quoting David in Psalm 95, we read in verse 7, And God designates a certain day, saying in David, Today, after such a long time as it has been said, if you will hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. 
In other words, long after the people of Israel entered into and enjoyed for some time the rest found in the promised land, the question that presents itself is, then why in the world would David 400 years later write in Psalm 95 that today is the day? That God is still holding out to His people an offer of salvation rest. Which leads us to the final point today. The writer of Hebrews concludes in verse 9 by writing, There remains in the now, right now, presently, therefore a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Now, that was a lot, understand? We're to bring everything back together. The main point that the writer is trying to communicate here in verses 4 through 10 is that today there still remains a rest that is open. That today, a joy-filled, Christ-redeemed, God-glorifying rest exists for the people of God. For those who would not only know Christ in their heads, but know Christ in their hearts. Not only for those who understand the Word of God, but believe in the very Word of God incarnate. That we would look to Him, that we would fix our gaze upon Him, and that we would cling to Him, and we would follow Him, and love Him, and obey Him in faith. Now lastly, verse 11 we read, Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. The great lesson of Hebrews thus far, if I can generally summarize everything, is that theology drives doxology. Our understanding of who God is, our understanding of the triune God, both in His economy and ontology, is what motivates us and is what drives us and compels us to faithful and obedient living. The Christian faith or rather the Christian life, is a life that's filled with day-to-day, moment-by-moment, second-by-second vigilance. And we see this in some of the exhortations that we've already studied thus far in our study. We read, Give the more earnest heed to the things of God. Do not drift away, in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. Do not neglect so great a salvation, Hebrews 2.3. Fix your eyes upon Christ, Hebrews 2.9. Hold fast to the confidence and the hope in Christ Jesus, Hebrews 3.6. Be, cautious, be cautious, cautious of unbelief in departing from the living God, Hebrews 3.12. Exhort one another daily in the Lord, Hebrews 3.13. And today, under the theme of God's eternal rest, we find that we're admonished by God in verse 1 to fear lest any of us come short of His rest. And in verse 11, to be diligent to enter His rest. And it's these two exhortations that not only serve as the focal points in our passage, but they really function like bookends, the front and the back covers of a book that tie this whole section together in verse 1 through 11. Now, as I was studying this passage this week, I couldn't help but keep on thinking, and perhaps for you too, this sort of paradoxical paradigm that's happening here. That true spiritual rest in God is one that involves the response of fear and diligence. Did you catch that? True spiritual rest in God 
in which one is cleansed and freed from sin must be entered not by the cessation of all activity, not by the cessation of effort and vigilance, but by its application. In other words, we are to enter the rest of God by not resting, but doing something. So let's quickly study these two exhortations and we'll draw to close afterwards. But let's, again, look at these two exhortations. First, redirecting our attentions back to verse 1, we find that we're instructed, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of God's rest. And the question that immediately comes to mind as we try to apply this into our lives is, so are you saying, or is the writer of Hebrews saying here that we're to live a life that's constantly filled with fear? Are we to live constantly in fear that we would one day be lost? Should Christians live in continual fear? Is that, is that what the text is saying here? If so, why and how in the world is constantly living in fear, how does that exactly equate to rest? Because as a matter of fact, that sounds pretty unrestful to me. So how are we... How are we to get that and make sense of all of this? Quickly look down to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 with me, and we read here, again, Hebrews 2.14. We read, Inasmuch that as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death, namely Jesus, he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Huh. This to say, Christ died to make you fearless. Because of the work of God the Son upon the cross, because the Son of God became the Son of Man, He frees you to live a fearless life before the devil, before death, before darkness and sickness and joblessness and singleness and loneliness and so on and so on. How? Through His promises. Promises like Isaiah 41 verse 10, and we often sing this at Pillar, it goes like this, Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee. Yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Now some of you are listening to this and thinking, okay, that's great, I like that, sounds good. But you didn't answer the question. All that you said so far is that we're exhorted to fear not entering God's rest. And he responded to that by saying that Christ died to set us free from fear. So if I'm getting this right, you're telling us that we're exhorted to fear while simultaneously freed from fearing? How in the world does that make sense? Is there a contradiction here? Absolutely not. Let me explain. The crux of the issue here in being commanded to fear is an issue of if you believe in God's promises or not. Meaning, if you believe in God's promises, such as Isaiah 41, as we just read, fear goes away. 
And the only thing that's left to fear is not believing in that promise of God. There, there's only one thing in this world that Christians should fear. And it's the fear of not believing in the one who is the God of rest. It's the fear of not believing in the promises of God that makes you fearless. You get that? The one thing that Christians are to fear in this life is not believing in the promises of God that produces within us a fearlessness. Hence, giving reason for why and how in verse 11, we can be diligent, which is the second exhortation. So how are we to be diligent to enter God's rest? The answer by striving to take hold of God's promises. In other words, we're called by God to enter into His rest, not by resting, again, here's the paradox, but by diligence. We're to enter into God's rest, not by resting, but by striving. True spiritual rest in God is to be entered, not by the cessation of effort, but by its application. The writer here isn't contradicting himself, but rather he has a specific theological framework in his mind when writing this. Because of those who fell in the wilderness due to their disobedience, because they stopped short of taking hold of and stopped trusting in the promises of God, the writer uses Israel's disobedience and distrust as an example, as an illustration to urge his listeners to not do the same He's saying, don't do that. Don't be like them. Don't stop short of obedience to God's call to enter into His eternal rest. Run. Strive for it. Be diligent to obtain it. Why? For God has promised it to you. Friends, this is an imperative of utmost importance. We're exhorted to enter into God's rest not by a lethargic spirit, but with the spirit lit ablaze for the love of God. We're, into, we're to enter into God's rest not by resting, but by desperately running with all of our might. By in the words of Paul, by working out our salvation in fear, with fear and trembling, Philippians 2.12. And friends, don't think for a second as we study this, don't think for a second or believe that the writer here is saying that we're to in any way, shape, or form work our way or earn our way into this rest. But what he's referring to here in our passage is of a genuine faith that works. And it's in this dynamic between these two exhortations, fear and fearlessness, rest and diligence, that we find the assurance of our salvation. It's here where we find the fruit of assurance growing out from the root of faith. Where we find the relationship between faith and works and works and faith. Works of obedience that's rooted in faith in Christ. William Booth puts it in this way. He writes, Faith and works should travel side by side, step answering to step like the legs of men walking. First faith, then works, and then faith again, and then 
works again until they can scarcely be distinguished which is the one and which is the other. Genuine and authentic faith in Christ does not exempt us from works, but rather it frees us to work the more excellently in Christ and for Christ. It frees us not from works, but from the false opinions that justification is acquired through works. The writer's intention in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1 through 11, our passage, is to communicate that we are now at the end of redemptive history, or as some theologians refer to it as the already but not yet, or inaugurated eschatology, big words, not really necessary for you to remember. But what we do need to know and remember is that we are in this very moment living in the last days. We see it right here in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, in these last days. And the message that the writer is trying to get across in all of this is that the promise to enter into God's eternal Sabbath rest remains open today, but only as long as it's called today. One commentator writes this, Today, of which is spoken here in this passage, is a crucial time of decision. There has never been before a today of such ultimate importance as today does not last forever. And this is what I, as I'm up here preaching to you, this is what I, in this very moment, want to plead with you to understand, especially for those of you in here without Christ. Unbelieving friends, if I can address you for a brief moment, You must know that God has never intended for today to last forever. There will come a time where today will be no more. There will come a time where you've gone past the line of God's mercy. There will come a day where you will have wasted away the day of God's grace. And there might come a day where God says to you that the time of grace is open today, but for you, no longer open. You must understand that there's a sense of great urgency here. And God implores you to come to Him today so as long as it is called today. And for those of you in here who have perhaps heard the Gospel time and time again and have gotten into this habit of putting off the coming to Christ, I need to warn you as well. I warn you this day that you are playing a very dangerous game that has eternal consequences. Life is short, as the great Spurgeon would say. Life is short and eternity is long. And the question that I want to leave you and the question that I want to close with now is this. Are you resting in God or are you not? Are you resting in God? Are you finding rest in God? Or or are you not? If not, I plead with you while today is still today to come to Him. Entrust yourself in the Son of God who became the Son of Man to pay the penalty of your sins. And enter, as we have read in verse 10, enter into His rest. Enter into His eternal rest which He not only patterned and ordained in creation, 
but has ultimately accomplished for you upon the cross of Calvary. Let's come to the Lord in prayer. Oh, Father, you are good, you are gentle, and you provide for your children. We confess that we've often grown cold and restless as we've drawn ourselves away from our dear Savior to the things and to the cares of this world. But by the Holy Spirit, we pray that you would aid us to ever flee back and situate ourselves underneath the caring arms of our Lord Christ Jesus. For it's only in Him and by Him alone that we find everlasting peace and solace. Though troubles pour and worldly fears rise upon us, we know that it's in Him we find eternal rest. We pray the words of Augustine, You have made us for Yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in You. We pray these things to the glory of the Father, in the name of the Son, and by the power of the Spirit. Amen.